From the studios of the Optimism Institute, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Burke, and in every Blue Sky episode, we'll be speaking to leaders, researchers, and thinkers whose stories and insights will remind us that there is always blue sky above. Sometimes you just have to get your head above the clouds to see it. Today's guest is Marcy Frank. Marcy is the Senior Communications Strategist at the Center for Climate, Health, and Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. This group is also known as the Harvard Chan Sea Change. In this role, Marcy works with scientists across Harvard to promote research that can help improve human health and the health of our planet. Her favorite project is bringing the Climate Optimist newsletter to inboxes every month. Today, as we discuss her work on Harvard's Climate Optimist newsletter, Marcy hits on several topics that are very important in our work here at the Optimism Institute. Things like our media consumption habits, how we educate our kids, and how hope and optimism inspire action far more effectively than fear and doom. Hello, Marcy. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Bill. Thank you so much for having me. So I'd like to start uh, with where you are working these days. We're all familiar with Harvard. Uh, some are less familiar with the Chan School of Public Health and probably still less familiar with the Sea Change program within that. So I wonder if you could just walk us through what is Sea Change and the Chan School and how that all come about. Sure. So I'm at the Center for Climate Health in the Global Environment, Harvard Chan Sea Change. And our mission is to increase awareness of how climate change impacts our health. And we do this using science to make it personal and actionable and urgent. And everything we do highlights climate solutions and the role we all play in uh, driving change. So 25 years ago, we had a landmark study on the true cost of coal. And it made a big splash because it revealed that coal impacts our health at every stage of its life cycle, which was big news at the time. And since then, we focused on how burning fossil fuels harms our health, and conversely, how greening our economy makes us healthier. And today, we're also using our research to help the healthcare system become resilient to the climate crisis to protect patients from the risks of climate change. Terrific. Well, the things you mentioned, um, you know, can be scary to people and people are fearful of climate change. And some, uh, you're now the, the editor of a newsletter called The Climate Optimist. And there are a lot of people out there for whom the climate optimist seems like an oxymoron or a misfit. Could you explain to us how the climate optimist come about and why did you choose optimism as opposed to fear and, and uh, more dire warnings about climate change? Absolutely. So we published our first issue in early 2019. So we're turning four this year. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. It was inspired by our former director, Gina McCarthy, who is hands down the most optimistic and realistic person you'll ever meet when it comes to climate change. And if you haven't heard her name, you've definitely seen her work she was the EPA administrator in the Obama administration. And most recently, she was our very first National White House climate advisor in the Biden administration, where her job was to pull together every government agency to address climate change, 
in what they call the whole of government approach to climate solutions. So between her time at EPA and her time at White House, we got to have her as our director for a couple of years. So if you go back to 2019, we had an administration who wasn't exactly prioritizing climate action. Is right. one way to say it. Yeah. And it seemed like every other day we saw another news story that rolled back yet another rule or regulation that previous administrations had put into place to protect our health and to tackle climate change. So if you were tuned into the climate policy world at that time, it was truly horrifying. And it felt like it was setting us back decades. And that really would have been your only takeaway if the only information you got about climate came from major news headlines. But that wasn't the only story that was unfolding at that time. So concurrently, cities and states were stepping up in major ways and were taking actions to keep us in line with the Paris Climate Accord to keep our temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And we also saw industry, philanthropy, and the grassroots levels all kick into high gear. So even though the federal government was asleep at the wheel, all of these tremendous efforts were underway making progress, but they were just out of view when it came to media attention. So we created the Climate Optimist to shine a light on climate actions that were taking hold across the country to reassure people that solutions were underway and to give people hope for our future and also a menu of options for how they could get involved if they wanted to become part of the solution. So if you fast forward to today, we've made huge progress. Every level of government is kicked into high gear, doing something good for our climate. But the issue itself is still big and scary, and we're still getting mostly doomy headlines. So we keep going with the same message that climate change is happening, but we have solutions and there is a role for everyone to play to be part of those solutions. I'd like to take a quick break here to say that if you're inspired to look for and sign up for Marcy's newsletter, and I highly recommend you do, be sure to Google Harvard Climate Optimist. So happens there's also another newsletter that goes by Climate Optimist. And if you want to find Marcy's work, You'll find it by searching Harvard Climate Optimist. Back to our conversation. You're hitting on some themes that are very important to the work uh, we're hoping to do with the Optimism Institute, which is that, you know, good news doesn't sell papers or, or attract eyeballs on television. So it's a tough thing. You're sort of pushing uphill. And you said something important, which is things are bad. Things are concerning. But, and then you can explain reasons to be optimistic. A similar question, though, uh, play devil's advocate. Some would say, well, but we've got to really get people to swing into action and people need to be more concerned. And, and you know, if we tried to do this optimism thing, you know, maybe that's why my generation dropped the ball because we weren't scared enough, you know, 20 years ago. So how do you how do you answer critics who say that uh, that, that that optimism is going to breed complacency as opposed to, you know, scaring people into action? Yeah, I get this question a lot, actually. People wondering if sharing good news discourages people from taking action. So it's a good question. But actually, it's the opposite. 
because being optimistic leads to hope and feeling hope inspires action. It's the feeling of doom that creates a sense of apathy and disempowerment. So hope is so powerful, in fact, that doctors actually use it as a therapeutic tool to help patients rise to the challenge of navigating a scary diagnosis. So hope can make us feel better overall. It can make us more creative problem solvers, and it can inspire us to take action to overcome seemingly insurmountable challenges. So we need a constant flow of good climate news to let us know that our efforts are working and to let us know that it's worth our energy to try. And I really love telling the story about how hope versus doom plays out with our actions on climate change. So I had this conversation with my friend Aisha just over a year ago, and she had just read an article that freaked her out about methane because the headline literally read, (laughs) it's time to freak out about methane. (laughs) So you can Google that. It still comes up at the top of the Google results. So if you read this article, it explains how methane is supercharging climate change and how it's a greenhouse gas orders of magnitude stronger than carbon dioxide. And it leaks into our atmosphere from our oil and gas networks, from our livestock facilities and landfills. So it is ubiquitous. So she reads this article and then she goes straight to Twitter which is where any well-informed masochist would go to learn more about this terrible news, right? Yeah, where good news goes to die, yes. (laughs) 100% dies there. And so at that time, methane Twitter was talking about a methane plume in Russia that was so big that you could see it from space. And she was like, from space. (laughs) You know, she was... (laughs) I could hear the vortex of doom just churning in her brain. And she, she said later she was washing out a plastic container to recycle. And that's when she started to really obsess about this plume in Russia. And at that point, it was just kind of like this Rube Goldberg machine of catastrophic thoughts just triggering off in her brain. And she said she got so overwhelmed by how badly things were going. And she knows that we really need systemic overhauls to our entire way of life to solve the climate crisis. And she's like, I'm over here washing out this milk jug. It's absurd, right? So she just throws it into the trash. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Whatever. We've all like rage trashed some recyclable or something like that. But it's it's understandable. And I think her reaction makes a lot of sense because why would you bother doing anything at all if the problem is so big and heading in the wrong direction? Right. So that's why a climate doom mindset is so dangerous. That in addition to the mental health toll of feeling hopeless, it leads to apathy and inaction. And In this case, the information she was getting about methane came from a social media echo chamber that was straight up fear mongering at that time, right? Because while she was following directions like a good media consumer and properly freaking out about methane, quieter headlines were circulating at the very same time, at the same time, about what would become the global methane pledge, which is a very big deal. 
It's 111 world leaders that agreed to reduce methane emissions in line with our 1.5 degree temperature rise goal. It is a huge boon to our planet because these countries are responsible for 45% of all methane emissions. And they're committing now to reducing them by a third by 2030. And at the same time, here in the United States, to meet that, that methane pledge, we were working at on the most aggressive methane rules that had ever been proposed by the United States. And these rules now mean that we're going to be fixing 3 million miles of pipeline and cutting methane emissions across our entire food chain. So this was all happening at the same time that Aisha was freaking out about the methane plume. And bad news travels faster than good news, right? The frenzy was totally focused on doom. So it was amazing. And I asked Aisha if she heard about the pledge or about these rules, and she hadn't. And I said, well, of course not. Of course not. And she was being very informed. Right. She was doing everything she could to be informed. And I said, well, now that, you know, does it make you feel better? And she said, yeah, definitely. And I can't make this up. This really happened. But <laughs> she felt so much better that she went and took her milk jug out of the trash <laughs> <laughs> and rinsed it off and recycled it. From you, I've learned vortex of doom and trash rage or rage trash. Oh, yeah. You got to rage trash that recycling like... <laughs> it's very human, right? Both of these things. I want to take a break here and underscore something Marcy's saying, as it's very important to the work we're doing at the Optimism Institute. We know there are people out there who look down on optimists as being naive and criticize them for not taking action on problems because they just assume that life will get better regardless. But what Marcy is saying and we agree wholeheartedly, is that it's an outlook of doom that breeds apathetic hopelessness, while optimism spurs action. Now, back to our conversation. You pointed out something that we'd love to encourage people to think about uh, when it comes to media consumption is, is headlines versus the full article, mm-hmm. right? So we're all time crunched. We scan headlines. And as you probably know, especially in newspapers, the headlines are often written by a different person than the one who wrote the article. So right, they get to right. the article and, and they want the headline to attract eyeballs. So they make it. And, and recently the reports came out about uh, education losses during the pandemic, for example. And it was the headlines were very dramatic, that huge drop off, 30 percent in learning and all this stuff. But and then you read the article. I read the article. And, and as I recall the math, it was I think it was rising ninth graders. Uh, in past years, about 25% of rising ninth graders were not reading at an appropriate level. But after the pandemic, that number grew to 33%. And they took the 25 to 33 and said it had, it had gotten 30% worse or something like that. And I thought a headline could have been, despite all the challenges of the pandemic, America's teachers and parents did a remarkable job that reading only dropped from you know 25% of people to 33 right? It's, it's these, these ways of spinning a, a piece of content with a snappy headline can take you in such a different direction, whether it's positive or negative. And it tends to be negative because it gets more attention. 
Absolutely. So one of the things that we've talked about before is how climate doom is the new climate denial. And I think it was Michael Mann, a climatologist, who first started talking about this. And essentially, the issue is that with climate denial, we don't take action because we don't think it's a problem. And with climate doom, we don't take action because we think it's a problem we can't solve. And either way, we end up not taking action. And both narratives are hard to overcome, but not impossible, especially if you step back and look at two forces at play, forces that are way bigger than us and trace back to why it is that we feel so doomy in the first place. And first is that climate denial and climate doom are both narratives and PR campaigns funded by the fossil fuel industry that are designed to protect their profits and to make it so they can keep pumping oil and gas out of the ground. So if you believe in climate change, as most people do now, and if you worry about climate change, which most people do now, then your mission, if you choose to accept it, is to change your mindset from doom to hope, because it's going to make you feel better and you'll be a more effective part of the solution. And the first way to do that, I think, is to understand that there's some manipulation going on here, paid for by the fossil fuel industry, designed to turn us into climate doom zombies, who are so overwhelmed by the size of the problem that we don't do anything to fix it. So that's the first force at play here. And the second gets to what you were just talking about, which is the media and how news outlets tend to write more negative stories because they capture our attention, they get clicks, they get advertising dollars, and they leave us to believe the world is worse than it actually is. So combine that with the fact that our brains are hardwired to fixate on bad news, right? It's a primal survival instinct. But this isn't great when all the news is bad. What happens is we have this magic cocktail that can stamp out any light of hope in even the most optimistic of people, right? So the antidote, I think, to this particular force is to understand that massive climate progress is underway. It just gets buried under really doomy headlines. So that's why we write the Climate Optimist newsletter because it's my job to go looking for this good news in not major news outlet sources, but that, you know, in more wonky news sources, like catching wind of things that are happening. And I compile it so that people who don't have the full-time job of going to look for this good news have some way of knowing that things are moving in a good direction. You had mentioned all the different reasons to be hopeful in terms of um, community and government action. And I think one of the one of the things that was kind of unfortunate was that the Inflation Reduction Act was called the Inflation Reduction Act. <laughs> and because, you know, it was done, I think, you know, it was coming up on the midterms and, you know, folks need to be addressing inflation. But a lot of what was in there, if I if I understand it, was really positive, really and potentially impactful climate legislation. Are there things in there that you think we should all be more aware about and and that should make us hopeful? Absolutely. But before we even get into the details about the Inflation Reduction Act, we need to talk about the fact that last year, 
in the last year or so, we passed three laws that on the surface don't seem to be about climate change. Climate change isn't in the name anywhere, but a climate bill by any other name can still save the planet. So together, these three bills allocate $514 billion to move us away from fossil fuels. And together, this is America's biggest ever investment in climate action. And it's going to completely transform our economy and our infrastructure on a scale we haven't seen since the New Deal. So this is a big, a big reason to be hopeful. So let's walk through them. First, we have the Chips and Science Act that will revamp our country's manufacturing sector to provide the things that we need to build EVs and wind turbines and solar panels and batteries, essentially all of the physical things that we need to build a clean energy future. And there are also funds in this act to keep innovating green technologies so we can continue to make these things better and more efficient. So then we have the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, which is affectionately known as the Bipartisan Infrastructure Deal. This particular bipartisan infrastructure deal is going to pave the way for developing green technologies at scale, at deploying them at scale. So, for example, it's the largest investment ever in repairing roads and bridges since they built the national highway system. So there's something like 45,000 bridges that are known to be in poor condition. So with the money from this fund, they're, when they set out to repair them, the focus is going to be making them climate resilient and safer. And it's also the country's largest ever investment in public transit. So it's going to be expanding access and replacing old vehicles that are polluters with zero emissions vehicles. And one of the best programs from this part of the transportation is the clean school bus program because this is going to replace old diesel buses with mostly electric ones, which is key to cleaning the air that our kids breathe. If you've been at school pickup or drop off, you see these buses chugging pollution into the air on the school grounds. There's a lot of idling going on. So already school districts can apply to receive funding to start replacing these school buses. So just to round out, you know, these, there is a lot that is in the bipartisan infrastructure deal, but just some other things I think are worth mentioning is that we're installing a nationwide network of EV chargers so that every 50 miles along all of our highways, you will be able to charge your EV within one mile of an exit. So that's a big deal. And it will incentivize people who are on the fence about wanting to go EV or not, people with range anxiety, which I understand totally. And then there's investments for our clean energy transmission grid and investments for making all of our infrastructure resilient to climate change. So, Bill, you start asking me about the Inflation Reduction Act is something that we should all know more about. And I'm ready to start talking about that now, but you can see that already we're just, most people don't know that these things are happening. 
no. it doesn't really get covered all that often. No, it right? Really and doesn't. if it does get covered, we're we're going to be tuned in more to the bad news than the good news, so it might fall out of our brain. So, let's talk about the Inflation Reduction Act, which essentially aims to electrify everything. And it's designed to supercharge the effectiveness of the other two climate laws by driving investments in green technologies. So the IRA is also the bill that's most likely to have a direct impact on our daily lives. Let's talk about the tax credits that are available for everyone to electrify our homes. And of course, there are equity issues at play here. Not everybody is able to afford upgrades. Not everybody owns their own home. There was an effort made to have sort of a sliding scale of tax credits based on income and zip code. So with that caveat, some of the things that you can think about if you are actually thinking about making upgrades to your home are things like getting tax credits for replacing your doors or your windows or upgrading your appliances so that they will be electric to get off gas appliances or even next level if you've been thinking about installing solar panels or a heat pump. All of these things now have 10 years of tax credits available to you. So Whereas before you used to rush out and try and get an EV, if that was your thing, before the tax credits expired, now you just have access to them for the next 10 years. And if this is interesting to you or your listeners, I would say Google the Rewiring America Calculator. Rewiring America Calculator. Okay. And that will help you figure out how much money specifically you can expect from the Inflation Reduction Act. It personalizes for you based on your income and your zip code. It is. So there are some less tangible benefits that are also going to have big impacts on our lives. The think tank Energy Innovation found that the IRA is likely to reduce our energy bills by an average of $1,800 dollars a year. Really? It's a big deal. Yes. And create 1.5 million jobs by 2030. And big impacts for our health too, which is, um, it is projected to save 3,900 lives per year by 2030 and avert 100,000 asthma attacks per year by 2030 which is a big deal if you have asthma or if if someone you know, you've seen them struggle to breathe. This is a big deal. So outside our homes, the IRA also invests in creating more wind and solar farms, more batteries to store the power when it's not windy or sunny, and transmission lines to carry that energy from where it's created to where it's going to be used. And when you zoom out a little, What's really cool about the IRA is that the climate progress it will make isn't limited to just what the government will pay for. Because the government has guaranteed these investments for 10 years, it sends a signal to the private sector that it's safe for them to invest in greening our economy too. 
and that there's a huge opportunity for them to make money. So if there's a new administration in a couple of years, these things can't be rolled back. So it takes that uncertainty out of it. Okay. That's really helpful. Industry loves certainty. And it's projected that the IRA is going to spark $1.2 trillion in additional investments in renewables between now and 2035. Amazing. It is amazing. Does it make you feel better? I'm feeling (laughs) better as we go. This is great. Good. This is great. mentioned school buses, which reminded me, um, we talked before and you were, you had a great appearance on the weather channel and you told a story about your son and what he'd been taught at school. And it made me, I'd love for you to tell that story. And then also talk about, you know, presumably the climate optimist is not read by a lot of young people. It's more an, an adult audience, but how do we, as you tell this story or at the, after that you tell the story, perhaps, you know, how should we be talking to young people about all of this? So if you could start with your son's story and then how you might have done it differently if you had been the teacher that day. Oh, my goodness. Perish that thought. I could be an excellent armchair educational <laughs> consultant. <laughs> yes. Have at it. But uh, <laughs> OK, so the story with my son is that One day after school, he was coming in and I reminded him that he needed to do chores before he went out to play. And then he just exploded. He said, that's just great. We only have 30 years before Earth can't support life anymore. And I have to fold my clothes. (laughs) I'm like, what is happening? Where did this come from? So... After talking to him, it turns out that this was an emotional hangover from lessons on climate change in his sixth grade science class, which I think he had towards the end of the day. It was fresh in his mind. So I wrote to his teacher to inquire politely why my son now thinks his days are numbered. And the teacher responded with a very thoughtful, very thorough response. And he went into detail about how he taught the kids that the greenhouse effect mimics previous mass extinctions that the planet has endured. And then he outlined all the ways that life will essentially be (laughs) near apocalyptic by the time his students reach age 50. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. So he sort of doubled down. He didn't say, well, I didn't, I didn't say that stuff. <laughs> he basically laid it out for you. Right. And to be fair, there he was trying, but I have some notes <laughs> that he could use next time. Yes. Yes. Um, he, you know, he said he was using visuals from an inconvenient truth, Al Gore's inconvenient truth, which for better or worse, I think was designed to scare grownups into taking action versus like terrifying kids to make them think they'll never grow old, you know? So this was a series of lessons. And on the last day, he said, his teacher said, and I quote, he tries to bring them back from their despair by showing them that there's a global effort to combat climate change and that it's it's curbing CO2 levels. And then he tells them, about their carbon footprint and how they can make sacrifices to save 
the planet. So by the end of this email, I was just totally heartbroken as a parent, thinking about my kid feeling despair, given the way it was taught. And also really angry because by the way his teacher explained it, despair is baked right into his lessons by design. And then he puts the responsibility for saving the planet on the shoulders of a room full of sixth graders. Like, don't forget to recycle kids, like, or else. You just want him to fold the laundry when he gets home from school. And now he's got (laughs) existential doom. I know, I know, I know. I, it was awful. So I was able to talk to him in detail about what it is, what are these messages that he has taken away now? And then I was able to fill him in on some of the positive progress, but it was a hard sell. And this was just before the IRA was voted into law. So last summer on a family road trip through the Midwest, we tuned in to hear Congress passed the law while we were driving through miles and miles of wind turbines. And I was like, this is such a beautiful moment. And I am totally nailing this parenting thing right now. <laughs> like, just look at this. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> you know, but out loud, I was able to say, see, it's already happening. Just look around, you know, so he's feeling better now. But I think about his classmates that received the same messages in his classroom and in classrooms around the country. And, you know, when I wrote about this, I heard back from a lot more readers than usual who had stories similar to mine. And one mom of three kids under age 11 said they all think that they're basically doomed. So I think we can do better. Well, sure. And, and, it's it's one of the reasons I'm glad we're talking about this. I mean, and why I'm why I'm working on optimism generally too is you know our my my kids are older than yours and they're in their 20s and and you know they have friends who are thinking about getting married and and maybe having a family but then they think well, I don't know if I want to bring children into a world that's going to be doomed <laughs> and you know you mentioned evolutionarily we 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 respond to fear but we also respond to procreation. You know, that's sort of, we're hardwired to have children too, in some, to some extent. And the fact that people are so concerned about the state of the world that they don't want to bring children into it um, is troubling. And like you said, there are other students in that class whose, whose moms don't do what you do for a living. And so you, you worry about all the folks that aren't getting that message the way you were able to reinforce it. So it's a big issue. It is a big issue. It is. When Marcy tells the story about her son, I can't help but think about a classic scene from a classic movie, 1978 Best Picture winner Annie Hall. It's a flashback to a young Alvy slouched on a psychiatrist's couch. His mother sits next to him. He's been depressed. All of a sudden, he can't do anything. Why are you depressed, Alvy? Tell Dr. Flicker. It's something he read. Something he read, huh? The universe is expanding. The universe is expanding? Well, the universe is everything, and if it's expanding, someday it will break apart, and that will be the end of everything. What is that your business? He stopped doing his homework. What's the point? What has the universe got to do with it? You're here in Brooklyn. Brooklyn is not expanding. No, Brooklyn is not expanding, any more than it's likely that our world will be destroyed by climate change in the next 30 years. Now back to our conversation. 
You know, I want to acknowledge that good on the school district for including climate change at all. It's not a given in every school district. And also, it's really hard to change a curriculum sometimes, as I'm learning by talking with teachers in my own district. So, you know, again, I can put my armchair education advisor hat on and say what I wish my children will be able to hear in class. When it comes to climate change, you know, I'd love to see climate change being discussed as more than just an earth science issue and the mechanics of how greenhouse gas emissions are playing in our atmosphere and the disasters they create. Because it's really a story about humanity rising to meet an enormous challenge. And you can look at it from all sorts of angles and make it multidisciplinary. It has to do with science and innovation and technology, policy, and civic engagement. So I'd really love for any teacher covering it in the classroom to make it clear that there is a massive effort underway to make their students' futures not just livable, but thriving. And it's also a topic that's changing rapidly right now. So updating your lessons every year to reflect the solutions um, and climate actions that are new, hot off the presses, would go a long way towards warding off despair, I think, when kids are talking about it. And um, I think mentioning the three major climate laws that were just passed and the ways they're going to cut greenhouse gas emissions by completely revamping how we run our economy, that's positive to hear. And so I also think it's important for kids to feel empowered to be part of the solution. And I want to be really specific about what I mean here about being part of the solution. Because like like my son's teacher, a lot of teachers teach their students about their own personal carbon footprints and the types of sacrifices that we can make to save the world. And while I do think it's really important to talk about how we can all live more sustainably, I think talking about sacrifice to save the planet is a lot to put on tiny little shoulders, right? It's not fair to make them think that if they don't eat organic food, which isn't something accessible to everyone, or if they don't recycle a water bottle, that they're sabotaging our environment. So instead, we can teach that solving the climate crisis requires us to stop burning fossil fuels. So our personal impact is much larger when we join causes to transition to clean energy or support energy efficiency initiatives or block fossil fuels and new buildings, that sort of thing. And rather than focusing on a mindset of sacrifice, we can focus on the economic and health benefits that happen when these initiatives are up and running. And those are easy to describe. Electricity bills go down and we get healthier. So it would be great to focus on initiatives that are underway and working both at the federal and local levels and almost certainly there's something happening in that school district's vicinity that teachers can teach about and that students can take part in if they want. Well, I think you said something really, you said a lot of things are really interesting, but one was this idea of this being a multidisciplinary effort in education. 
Because a lot of what you talked about is not the science of climate change. It's about business and innovation and technology and government and voting and getting involved. And, you know, I could see this and forget just just, you know, grade school and high school, the college curriculum across disciplines to, to look at climate change as a multidisciplinary issue um, that's going to be solved in multidisciplinary ways could could make a huge difference. So I think what you're saying is is really important and it's so inspiring. One thing I'd like to ask just about everybody I talk to, um, you know, some people think you're you're sort of born optimistic, born pessimistic, just as sort of it's like you're a lefty or a righty or you know whatever. Where where does your personal sense of optimism come from, you know, not just about climate, but I can tell, I've got to know you a little bit. You're, you're an optimistic person. Where, where would you describe that coming from? Sure. So I am generally an optimistic person, but I'm also spectacularly good at catastrophic thinking. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It's my superpower. I can write about that. So staying optimistic about climate change is a practice that is sometimes easier than others. And I'd say it's especially difficult every time there's a major climate impact that takes lives or destroys homes. So when it comes to climate change, I approach it the same way I overcome other catastrophic thoughts, which is to separate out what's a rational fear and what's an irrational fear. And I'd say it's rational to be afraid of climate change and to know that climate impacts are here and they're here to stay. But what's irrational is to assume it's a given that the whole planet will become unlivable. So I focus on the big picture of worldwide actions and how far we've come because even just five years ago, it really looked impossible to avoid some of the worst impacts. But actions we've already taken have already veered us away from those impacts. So climate actions are picking up to meet the moment. And we finally have not just a trifecta, but a quadfecta. That's a word Ah, I had to look it up. I didn't know that was a word. Uh, It should be if it isn't. I didn't know either. I was really hoping it was, but we do. We have one, a quadfecta of climate hope working in our favor. And that is that we have the solutions. We have public support. We have political will. And now with these three major climate laws passed, we finally have the funding to tackle climate change head on. So I think it's just taking a deep breath, looking big picture, realizing that we've come a long way. We have a lot longer to go, but you know, there's also a role that you can play in making things better. And um, that engagement can happen on any level and in any way that's comfortable for you to take part in. And I would say that action is a very powerful antidote to despair because once you get involved, you start to see other people that are involved and passionate. And it's not just you alone with your thoughts at 3 a.m., for example. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, um, you know, you can see the progress unfolding in real time. Well, Marcy, I can't thank you enough. This has been an incredible conversation. I am feeling even more optimistic as, I, as we end this call than I was before. We will be sharing all of your information on our various uh, 
on our website and social media. And I just want to stay in touch and wish you all the best of the Climate Optimists. And just thank you for all you're doing and keep up the great work. Thank you. And thank you for taking on this huge project. You know, I can't wait to hear who else you talk to because... There's a lot of bad news, but the people who are working on turning that into good news, I think, can give us all a sense that there's so much more good happening that we're aware of. So thank you for for launching this podcast and for helping me be part of it. You got it. Thanks, Marcy. All right. Take care. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Blue Sky Podcast with our guest, Marcy Frank, editor of the Harvard Climate Optimist Newsletter. I do have some bad news for Marcy before we go. I looked it up and quadfecta, I'm afraid, is not in fact a word, but I still say it should be. Please look for and listen to more Blue Sky episodes wherever you find your podcast, and be sure to follow the Optimism Institute on social media. Until next time, I'm your host, Bill Burke, and thanks for listening to the Blue Sky Podcast.